This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Coming up on today's show, so who's next? Aaron O'Toole is out. Who should be the new leader? Michael Tobe will join us, a columnist and former speechwriter for Prime Minister Stephen Harper. He likes Pierre Polyev. James Cumming will join us, former Conservative MP from Edmonton, to give us his thoughts. How's your power bill? Higher than ever before? A lot of people saying it is. We'll find out why. And the Olympics kick off tomorrow. All right, so who's next? Who's going to jump in and run for leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada now that Aaron O'Toole has been removed? When we talked about this yesterday, the name that overwhelmingly you put forward was Pierre Polyev. And I understand why. Absolutely, I do. The guy's dynamic. He's really grabbed a lot of the attention. Do you want to talk about who's been the most effective opposition member? I think it's head and shoulders, Pierre Polyev. I don't think anybody's even been close. So is he the guy? We're going to get some uh, insight and get some uh, perspective. We're going to chat now with Michael Tobe, who is a columnist for Troy Media and Looney Politics. He's a contributor to the National Post, Washington Times, and was a speechwriter to former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for your time this morning. appreciate you joining us. Oh, my pleasure, Shay. Thank you. So I guess out of the gate, we would have to say, right? I mean, opening line odds, as they say, Pierre Polyev is the odds-on favorite, but we don't even know if he wants it. But he's the name that everyone's talking about, isn't he? Yeah, the Vegas bookies would definitely say that, especially if they were here in this country. But yeah, I think so. I mean, if he chooses to run, and as of right now... Uh, Pierre Polyevre is uncommitted. He has said as, I think, as early as Tuesday or late on Tuesday that he didn't really want to be part of the discussion or talk for the leadership. But at the same time, that was also before the secret vote was held that determined that Aaron O'Toole's fate as leader of the Conservative Party, well, ended that day. Yeah. But he would certainly be the front runner if he chose to run. And um, I talked about it in my National Post column. I've known Mr. Polyevra since he was an intern in Jason Kenney's office way back when, which I guess shows a bit of my age and my gray hair. But <laughs> I have known him a long time. Um, he's a very intelligent, very talented guy, very experienced as well. I mean, he's been in politics now for a long period of time, but I don't have to tell your listeners that. They, they know him intimately. Yeah. And um, I think one of the keys also to him is the fact that he's only 42 and he's very media savvy, which means that, and this has been an issue that obviously conservatives have faced for many years, you know, whether I was working in Ottawa or otherwise, it's been something that we've discussed now for more than two decades. It's how we sell ourselves to the public and how we re- sell and resonate a small C conservative message on the, you know, the various basis of small government, low taxes, more individual rights and freedoms, et cetera, et cetera, and how we actually do it to distinguish ourselves from all the other parties. And that was one of the weaknesses that I think Mr. O'Toole's campaign had. Very nice guy, you know, very pleasant individual. He tried his best. He certainly had some conservative ideas in his policy, but they were overwhelmed or overshadowed in many cases by the fact that the 2020, uh, sorry, the 2021 federal election was really more about discussions of what we should do in the future and whether we wanted to change anything in the present. 
And in the end, most people just decided to stay with the status quo. Couple of things in there I want to talk about. First of all, you mentioned he's very intelligent. He's very media savvy. He's very effective. And I don't think there's any doubt about that. And as you said, Aaron O'Toole, a seemingly an extremely nice man. And I think you can go back to Andrew Shear and say, by yep. all accounts, a very nice man, a very decent human being. He is. Dull as dishwater. Pierre Polyev definitely has more of that going for him. He's more effective at grabbing the headlines. Is there anybody else out there in the conservative realm that may be thinking about doing this that can compete with him on that aspect of being a leader? Because he's definitely very good at that. Well, on that level, it's going to be pretty hard. I would say that most of the people who are in the caucus right now, they obviously have their strengths and weaknesses, but I think Mr. Polyevra is, is heads and shoulders above that. I think Pierre really has established himself as the best of the bunch, so to speak, when it comes to issues like that. But without a doubt, whoever else chooses to run, whether it be, say, Peter McKay, Rona Ambrose, um, Doug Ford in Ontario, whomever, they will obviously build teams around them that will be also media savvy, that will try to sell a message to a particular audience, put them, you know, put their candidates out as much as possible, both in the print media, the electronic media and social media, ensuring that, you know, obviously they get their message out to a very large group of people and as many as they possibly can. But the difference is, some of those individuals I mentioned are media savvy already, and, and they will be able to help to some extent and build the message with their team. The trick with Mr. Polyevra is that he is so far above and so far beyond where everybody is right now that basically he will have a team around him, but he will be taking the lead more than they will, not because they're inferior, but just because he is just so superior at basically selling his name, selling his ideas, and selling the conservative platform to such a wide scale. Yeah, I agree with you. He is exceptionally um, strong at that. Uh, The other thing you mentioned is issues and big C and little C and where does the conservative party stand? And that's going to be, I mean, a lot of people say that's what brought down Aaron O'Toole. Pierre Polyev, it's very different to be an opposition critic and sort of stand in there and hold the government to task than it is to lead a national party. There's people that say he's a little too abrasive, he's a little too divisive, he might not be able to translate well into leadership. Do you think there's an issue there? Not necessarily. I mean, he has spent a lot of time in politics, and and sure. And I pointed out in my column that, you know, some people look at him and saying, well, he's he's an ideologue, do we want that? Or that he's a pit bull, do we really need that sort of image for the Conservative Party? Again, it depends how you spin it, and it depends how the narrative is built from Pierre and his team if he does ultimately choose to run. You know, as an ideologue, I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, one, because obviously I am, but two, because an ideologue would be able to focus on what's important for the Conservative Party of Canada and Canadian conservatism as sort of a twin outlook. And I think that's exactly what you need right now. And it's not to say that, say, Aaron O'Toole or Andrew Scheer, who are both good guys and both have been in politics a long time and certainly had their, you know, their strengths and weaknesses. It's not that they weren't conservative. They just basically looked at it from a very different way. And it's certainly in the case of Mr. O'Toole, a less ideological way than Pierre Paulie ever would. And in terms of being a pit bull, it really depends how you look at it. I mean, it means that he will obviously be aggressive and out there, but that's especially what you want when you have a weak, ineffective leader like the current prime minister, Justin Trudeau. You want someone who's going to hammer away 
at the government and at the leader and basically point out all their weaknesses and not hold back, just keep moving forward as best they can, you know, to sort of build a case as to why the Liberal government over the last three elections, and they've been in, you know, in power now for over seven years, why they are just not effective and why they have brought Canada from, say, way up beyond to way down below where they are right now. So you need someone like a pit bull to actually come out with a strong message. But in fairness as well, Pierre Polyevre may sort of look like a pit bull to some people, but when you actually speak to him one-on-one, he's actually a very down-to-earth, congenial guy. He's very intelligent. He listens to ideas. He actually has a very libertarianish type of outlook on life as well. Doesn't really heavily focus on social issues, for example, even though obviously yeah. he has his positions. That sort of balance, I think, will work very well. So even if he is an ideologue and a pit bull, as some people say, it can be used to your advantage. The thing is that comes with that, and one of the things that was a big slam on Aaron O'Toole, I don't think Pierre Polyev is going to be accused of and probably will not flip-flop. He will take a stand on an issue, no. and he will be very forceful on it. Ha, I agree. You're absolutely right, Shay. No, if, if Pierre comes out with a thought, an idea or a principle on whatever it is, a government policy like, let's say, opposition to the carbon yep, tax, yep. which was something that obviously served as an albatross around Aaron O'Toole's neck for so long, you will know exactly where Pierre Polyapper stands. You will know where Pierre is going to go with this. If he rejects it, he's going to reject it from start to finish. He doesn't flip-flop, and, and that's really one of the great keys to him, I think, is that, sure, like everybody, you know, you get older, you think about issues, and occasionally you change your mind or sort of readjust your focus in a particular way. But the basic core elements of small-c conservative thinking are well within Pierre Polyev's grasp, and he has his eyesight laser-focused on what is best for Canada from a conservative fashion, more than uh, quite a lot of people who are currently in the caucus right now who are conservatives but might not necessarily take a, a certain stance or a particular position that would unfortunately be maybe a little more successful sometimes with a Main Street audience mm-hmm. that mostly sits on the fence and just you know goes whichever way the wind blows, but a little less so when it comes to ensuring that your red meat conservatives or your conservative base are properly aligned with your vision. They will not find that with Pierre. Michael, it's going to be interesting, and we will check in with you again, sir, along the way as it goes to uh, a vote. And I guess we'll have to see what happens, but I think you're right, Pierre Pelley of the front runner out of the gate. So uh, thanks for your time today. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Have a great day. You too. That is Michael Tobe, who's a columnist for Troy Media and Looney Politics, contributes to the National Post and the Washington Times, and uh, used to be a speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Uh, we're going to chat with James Cumming who is a former Conservative MP right up until the last election uh, and was the author of the report into what went wrong during the Conservatives' most recent campaign. Uh, James, thanks so much for your time. appreciate you joining us again. Uh, good to chat with you again, Shay. So the outcome yesterday, um, were, were you surprised? I mean, once it got to that point, it looked like it was sort of a foregone conclusion, right? Well, you know, caucus, um, as you're aware, has this uh, right uh, built in that they can, um, if someone presents a letter with over 20 signatures, that they can force a vote. Um, And when they had a letter of 35 signatures, uh, you need 50 plus one to move the leader. So, you know, it was pretty apparent that caucus wasn't that happy. 
um, and that uh, they decided to move in a different direction and out with uh, the leader and now interim leader and hopefully before the end of the year we'll see who the permanent leader is. Now your your campaign audit, if we want to call it that, whatever your 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 post mortem on what went wrong during the campaign. Um, I mean, there were some leadership issues that you mentioned, and Aaron O'Toole came out, uh, you know, once he'd seen the report and said he takes full responsibility for the things that went wrong. So, um, do you think when if you were still in caucus, um, what would your thinking of being going into that vote yesterday was Aaron O'Toole the problem? Well, I think the report was. Uh critical of the leader in some respects, but it was also critical of a bunch of other areas. It was critical of uh, the the party and positioning. Um, it's critical of um, how aspects of the campaign and the ground game. Um, you know, so it had, there, there's a bunch of pieces for the puzzle. It's not just one thing, but certainly, um, you know, there's work to be done. When you lose three elections in a row, yeah. if you don't take a hard look at yourself, then, you know, you're you're never going to be successful. So, you know, you can shoot the messenger, which is effectively what's happened here. But on top of that, you have to start looking at your message and how you execute on campaigns. And, and that was the point of the report is that, you know, to be ready and to, to win an election, it takes a lot of the pieces of the puzzle being in the right place. And certainly um, I'm hoping that they'll... Uh, go forward and, and take many of those recommendations and and move forward with it. So, James, going forward, obviously, I mean, getting a new leader is job one. And like you say, the three elections against an opponent that a lot of people, especially in conservative circles, think we should be beating this guy. There, there's all kinds of ways we could win. What are you looking for in a new leader? Who's the right, not necessarily a name, but what what does the new leader need to personify? Well, I think leaderships in uh, political parties is is a tough business, and and I think you have to have a bunch of different qualities. And I'll be looking for someone that has some demonstrated leadership experience, uh, and you have to be able to take converging uh, or divergent views and be able to uh, bring people together and and get them to a point that there's lots that we can probably agree on. Uh, sure, there's plenty that we disagree on, but there's probably lots we can agree on and, and build that team and build that framework um, so that you can go forward into uh, Election United. And you've got to have your caucus on side with you. So you have to be able to, you know, you may have some great ideas and, and some policies and a vision for the country, uh, but you also have to make sure that your teammates are on uh, that understand it, believe in it, and are supportive of you. So, you know, it takes, uh, takes a really strong leader yeah. to be able to, to uh, bring that team together. You're, you're, you're right. It's not an easy job. It, it, it's very, very difficult, especially with the Conservative Party, because you're right, there are so many strong, um, you know, it's got its own political spectrum along the political spectrum within that party itself that it is tough to keep together. What about going outside the people? I mean, the names that we keep hearing, Pierre Polyev, okay, in the party, um, but we always hear Rona Ambrose, Peter McKay, possibly going outside of the caucus and bringing in somebody like that. Is there somebody in that room, you think, or would it be a good idea to look a little farther afield? Well, I think we'll see people within the room, for sure. Um, I think you'll see some of the names that you've already mentioned that will uh, come to the forefront. Michael Chong has ran before. Uh, Pierre is certainly... uh, you know, many people, um, many of your listeners have put his name forward. Uh, outside of that room, uh, you know, there's people in Canada that were have been involved in politics before. John Baird comes to mind. Yep. 
Um, I heard on your show earlier today, Lori Hahn mentioned Carolyn Mulroney, uh, who's very well respected in Ontario. Um, and, and, you know, there, there may be other names that come up and there may be someone completely out of the, um, the realm of what people are thinking. You know, we've seen this before where someone from the outside comes in and comes up with a, a strong credentials and, uh, uh, a respected name and, and you know, doing this for the right reasons to try and get Canada uh, on the right track. And so that might appeal to the the uh, membership. But it's the membership decision. So, you know, you have to appeal to that membership first and then you have to be able to put something together that uh, sells to Canadians and, and inspires Canadians to vote for Conservatives. And obviously, James, not a lot of time here. I mean, we don't know when the next election will be with a minority government. Could technically happen at any time but you know it's going to be sooner rather than later so you got to get going on this pretty quickly yeah i i I did hear the the uh president rob batherson who i agree with wholeheartedly on this that he expects that it'll be complete by the end of the year year. and i'd and i'd fully support that i think you know for a leader you want to have some time and uh, you know, Aaron didn't have a ton of time after uh, winning the leadership, and then we went into a, a snap election. And I'm hopeful for the next leader that they have a little more time to be able to let Canadians get to know whoever that is and be able to develop some policy and, and that vision of of what the go-forward looks like and why a Conservative Party would be important to Canadians. In the meantime, James, how important is that year before the new leader is placed? And is Candace Bergen the right person to be the interim leader? And, you know, can you lose a lot over the course of this year, or could you gain a lot over the course of this year? Well, I think uh, Candace has got plenty of experience. She's well-respected by caucus. So I, I think as an interim leader, uh, she'll do just fine. She'll have the ability, I, I hope, to take some of the aspects of the report I put together and sort of get the framework uh, and start to get some of those pieces of the puzzle in place. Um, so I think she'll do a very capable job. She's sharp. She's articulate. Um and uh, she's very well respected. Excellent. James, always appreciate the insight and the analysis. Thanks so much for joining us again today. Good chatting with you. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's James Cumming, um, former Edmonton MP, Edmonton Centre, with the Conservative Party of Canada, and he was the guy who authored the report into uh, what went wrong with uh, the last Conservative campaign. Um, Ultimately, the caucus decided that what went wrong was Aaron O'Toole. And he is no longer leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Candace Bergen takes over as interim party leader. And as you heard from James, uh, the party has their eyes set on getting a new permanent leader in place prior to the end of this year. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. How's the power bill at your place? If you're like... 
so many people that I've heard from uh, recently, just everybody's getting a little bit of shock when they take a look at this month's power bill. Higher than they have ever seen before, some people are saying. So what's going on? Uh, Why is it like this? Is there anything you can do? And how long is it going to last? We're going to get into all of those issues with um, Joel McDonald, who is the founder of energyrates.ca. Joel, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Yeah, happy to do so. Uh, I think this is sort of the talk of well, not just the town, talk of the province anyway, uh, maybe even the country, everybody uh, sort of saying, wow, what's, what's going on? I've never seen a power bill like this. So um, just how much higher are these bills that you're seeing? Yeah, and I think I could even expand and say it may actually be the talk of the globe. Is that right? It's not just a phenomenon in Canada. We're seeing you know astronomical commodity prices across the globe for various reasons. Uh, but to answer your question, you know, specifically here in Alberta, um, there's a few different regions with different um, pricing mechanisms, so we can speak in generalities. Yeah. Um, then there's three different types of products, um, and this has actually caused a lot of confusion for Albertans. There's three different ways you could be purchasing your electricity and natural gas, and depending on how you're currently purchasing it, you could see a significantly different price. Uh, so you have one neighbor going out shoveling snow, cursing the energy companies for the high price, and his neighbor saying, hey, mine's not so bad. I don't know what you're complaining about. Right. Um, so, uh, but... What are those ways, though? Hang on. I, I didn't even realize this. What are, the yeah. different, what are the different ways you can be doing it? So um, the first way would be the regulated rate option. Okay. Essentially, 15, 20 years ago, all of the power natural gas markets were regulated. There was only one company that provided service in Edmonton. It would be EPCOR, Edmonton Power Company, in Calgary, it's Edmax. Um, when we deregulated the marketplaces, um, and the government didn't just want to throw everyone to the wolves and say, hey, as of January 1st, you have to go find a retailer. So everyone defaulted to those old companies, but had the option to move whenever they wanted. Um, they're called regulated because those companies, because they inherited all the customers, um, they cannot set the fees at whatever they like. Mm-hmm. They have to apply, apply to the Alberta Utility Commission yep. to have their rates approved. So that, that, that's the first way, the RRO, or regulated rate option. Uh, the second way would be to choose a competitive retailer. Um, names that Albertans may be familiar with. Core's Encore product, Edmax's EasyMax product, Atco Energy has has products as well. Um, And within a competitive retailer, you could choose fixed rates or floating rates. When I reference there being confusion, people that chose a competitive retailer on floating rates are seeing very high rates, as are the RRO rates. Specifically, both those class of customers are coming in about 15 cents a a kilowatt hour and five dollars a gj and historically they would be paying um you know well below seven cents wow so more than double gj more than double year over year taking december numbers uh they they have definitely doubled holy cow why what's going on why i mean i know it's all a global commodity and all i mean how did we get here yeah Well, it actually gets worse as well because um, two or actually three things that are adding to just the price of commodity. Uh, We do have the federal carbon tax, which is 
currently at $2.10 a GJ in April, moving to $2.62 a GJ. So that gets tacked onto the bill. We also, a smaller portion of it, but the uh, I don't know if, if your listeners will remember, but back in 2020, we had the utility deferral program, which allowed Albertans to defer their energy bills and not pay them uh, when the pandemic first started, Yeah, which in theory was a good idea. However, it wasn't a subsidy. It was just a deferral right. program. You're still paying uh, it. So everyone, you're still, well, <laughs> responsible consumers <laughs> realized they still had to pay it and did pay it. Uh, some people, regardless of their financial circumstances, chose not to pay it. Yep. Um, and then those funds, if they never, if they never, their energy bills just got divided up and applied to every single Albertan. Yeah. Utilities were allowed bills. to just basically tack a portion of that unpaid um, service to everybody who was paying their bills. You got it. Yeah. Crazy. So all of these things are contributing to exceptionally high bills. Um, and there's a, a couple other factors that, that play into uh, come into play. Uh, we hit an all-time grid high load of 11,939 megawatts for Alberta this past January 3rd. Um, and what tends to happen is uh, when we have extreme cold periods, we use a large amount of electricity as well as the increased demand pushes the price up. So it kind of hits us two ways. We're seeing a higher price per kilowatt uh, on our bill, and we're actually consuming more kilowatts. And of course, the same is for natural gas. How long do we anticipate this? I mean, nobody has a crystal ball here, Joel, but what are you sort of thinking we're going to see these kinds of record high prices for? I mean, is it long term? Is it here permanently? Yeah, we don't have a crystal ball, but what we do have is a summary of all experts' opinions, yeah. uh, which is essentially what the futures markets are. So both electricity and natural gas trade on a public market, and you can trade futures contracts. So you can buy and sell gas for um, June and July of uh, 2023, 2024. Each month has a trading period. And right now, all those experts are agreeing that we're going to remain in these high price points at least till you know Q2 2023. So we have about another year and a half. And then the back end of a curve is, is some uncertainty. It's currently pulling back a little. Um, but as we get closer to those dates, we'll see what happens. Okay. Last one before I let you go. And probably most important for our listeners, what can we do? I mean, if, if that bill just came through last month and you were like, wow, is there anything you can do sure. to, to cushion that blow? Absolutely. So historically, the RRO product had the price cap on, on it, and it was the most advantageous product. However, things have changed, um, and now with the, w- with the removal of the price cap, um, the lowest costs are coming out of the fixed-priced um, electricity and natural gas agreements. And to give you firm numbers, we talked about in and around $0.15 cents per kilowatt yeah. hour on the floating rate and the RO. Fixed prices are in and about $0.07 cents per kilowatt hour, oh, so half the cost. Additionally, one of the great advantages of Alberta is there's regulations that essentially prevent um, long-term contracts from having exit fees. So you can sign a one, two, three, five-year uh, agreement. And if for some reason the floating rates pull off, you can simply send your 30 days notice, exit that product without any fees. So that's your best bet if you're really finding it to be extraordinarily difficult. Absolutely. Win-win. Yeah, Take advantage sure. of the low fixed rates now. And if the markets change, submit your 30 days and, and take a look at other options. Makes perfect sense. Joel, good stuff. Great advice. Thank you so much.
Thanks for having me. You bet. The Olympics are underway in Beijing. They officially kick off with the opening ceremonies tomorrow, which I think will actually be like early, early, early morning for us. Really early morning. But anyway, uh, the official kickoff happens tomorrow with the opening ceremonies. But it's weird, right? The Olympics this year are very, very strange. And and not just because of the pandemic. Um, let's talk about that with Dr. Angela Schneider, who is the director of the International Center for Olympic Studies, Western University, also a former Olympian, someone we've chatted with before. Uh, doctor, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, how do you, how do you feel about these Beijing Winter Games? How are you feeling about them as they get started? They are very different from most Olympics, aren't they? Well, they are for a number of reasons. Um, there's no doubt that there's always been some kind of crisis debate in the media leading up to an Olympic game. So, you Mm -hmm. know, doping, terrorism, Zika virus, and to name a few. But this time we really do have um, some quite extreme situations that we've never had before. First of all, it's six months since the last game. So I think people are exhausted from Olympic games. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They haven't actually had a chance to recover their interest levels. Um, Second, you know, the athletes themselves have gone through absolutely extraordinary difficult conditions to get to China if they made it through qualifications, through COVID restrictions and all of that stuff. And then if they test positive when they arrive, as some have, they have to go into isolation and they don't know if they'll be out in time for their actual competition day time. So they may have went all the way to China for nothing. So the stress of the athletes for these Olympic Games, we've never seen anything like this. Never. No, no. and and, and I've seen stories heading over, I think it was the U.S. and the Canadian team both telling um, their athletes, hey, don't take your own phone, maybe. Maybe get yourself a burner phone. Don't use this app. Don't do... I mean, the kinds of security concerns that they're facing are, are unprecedented, too. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the worries that the team and the athletes and the, pro- the, the protocols, all the things that they have to concern themselves with are all distracting from their job, what they want to do when they get there, which is, of course, have the best performance of their life and live their Olympic dream. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it's extremely truncated and extremely controlled. And, you know, they're even getting warnings um, through the Chinese media that they need to be careful what they say if they do say something about anything. Boy, oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, so this is a... So this is really extraordinary. Uh, So we have never had athletes go through what they've gone through. And we've never had a situation with, you know, now the pandemic second Olympics within six months. And yeah, and the political, uh, you know, we've got a diplomatic boycott going on as well. Uh, So we haven't had boycott type issues, big ones for Canada anyway, in the United States for quite a while. So the question is... um is it worth it for the athletes? I mean, as you say, we've got the diplomatic boycott. Uh, I know a lot of people that I've spoken to here on the show say, why are we doing this? Why are we having games in Beijing? Even to begin with, it's craziness. It shouldn't even be happening. But the other argument has always been, well, it's important to the athletes. And this may be their one and only shot, and we don't want to deprive them of that. They've gone. They're getting ready to compete. So obviously they've made the calculation, and it's worth it to them. Well, and, you know, what choices do they have? The athletes didn't select yeah. the host city. And and they were being asked to pay the price for that selection. And, and really, that's just not fair. Uh, so, you know, 
I think it, it's worth reminding people that less than a half, you know, it's certainly the the majority don't get to go to two Olympic games. Like one game yep. is the majority, right? Yep. So this really is their chance for their Olympic dream for most of them. And, you know, they have done so much this time to get there. And is it worth it? Well, you know what? They You, you ask them before they leave, they're still going to go. Yeah. They still want to be there. And even with the risk that if they test positive and they have to go into isolation, they won't even get to, you know, to the competition <laughs> for the day of the event if they're in isolation. Yeah. So it's it's huge. It's huge stress. It's huge uncertainty. It's absolutely amazing what they have gone through. It really is. It, it, it's, it's, it's just remarkable in so many different ways. What do you expect? Are these games going to go off relatively smoothly? Well, you know... China certainly is implementing a much stricter COVID strategy than even Tokyo did. And, you know, the Japanese did an incredible job with the restrictions and trying to prevent um, infections. But the Chinese have called it the, the zero COVID strategy. I mean, you've seen the pictures of them in hazmat suits, you know, walking around. They've got these very strict enforced bubbles. I mean, it's it's even much more than uh, happened in, in Tokyo. So, um, yeah, it, it, it really is the case that you're sitting here looking at this and going, what, a, what an extraordinary experience. I mean, you want an extraordinary experience at the Olympic Games, but not necessarily like this. That's the thing. As someone who's been to an Olympics, I mean, that's sort of like, I mean, you want to talk about all of it coming down to one, I don't know, in some cases, in ten, to 10 seconds of your life uh, and all the buildup and all the things around it and having to be able to focus on that one brief moment in time. I'm just wondering if you were an athlete at these games, um, what your strategy would be? What would you tell athletes who are getting ready to compete with all of the nonsense that's going on around there that they can't control? How do they possibly go out and do their best? They really have to focus inward. Uh, You know, athletes do train for that, you know. It is the case that no matter where the Olympics are or any international competition like that, and even national competitions, there's a lot of stress and distractions. And so the athletes do train to focus inward and focus on their work and their performance. But in this case, they're really, really going to have to call on that. And for some more seasoned athletes, that might be a little bit easier. Some of the new people on the block, that's going to be really tough. This is just so foreign all the way around, the whole experience. And they're not getting the true Olympic experience either. So, you know, they won't know that because they won't have been to another Games to compare it to unless there are Olympians. And there are some that have been to other Games. And they, they, they will feel it and see it and see how truncated the experience is. But they're still there and they're still trying to live their dream. I mean, you know, my words to people are, you may be exhausted or burned out or feel indifferent, but think about our Canadian athletes and what they have done to get there. And maybe we can, you know, go out there and cheer for them one more time. Yeah, that's the other. That's the last one. Uh, so you'll be watching. I'll admit I'm a little conflicted because I want to support the athletes and I love the Olympics, but part of me is like, yeah, I just these games are some we shouldn't be having. I don't know what to do, but you'll be watching. I'll be watching and I'll be supporting athletes. But you know what I, I'm asking? I'm asking the media to invite the athletes to speak when they come home. Yeah. And they're on our country, in our country again, and, and 
let them have their freedom of speech and let them say what they want to say. And I'm also, I'm seeing some media are boycotting certain aspects of the game, which is really interesting. Some media are saying they're not going to cover the cultural expose. You know, the big thing that part of a host city does is showing off their culture. So they're just going to focus strictly on the athletics. Focus on the athletics. And so, you know, that's an interesting stand to take, saying, you know, I don't support this, uh, so this is the way I'm going to express that. It's, uh, it's, it's all very interesting, it is, and it's all very unique, and I'm more than happy to have any Olympic athlete on when they get home. That's absolutely something we can do here, and we will. Uh, and it's always a pleasure to chat with you, Doctor. Thanks so much. That's a pleasure. Thank you. Dr. Angela Schneider, who is the director of the International Center for Olympic Studies at Western University, former Olympian. Competed as a rower for our country. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.